0: History of England, Chapter Seven Part One This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the Second by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter Seven Part One The place which William Henry, Prince of Orange, Nassau, occupies in the history of England and of mankind is so great that it may be desirable to portray with some minuteness the strong lineaments of his character. He was now in his thirty-seventh year, but both in body and in mind he was older than other men of the same age. Indeed, it might be said that he had never been young. His external appearance is almost as well known to us as it is to his own captains and counsellors, sculptors, painters and medallists, exerted their utmost skill in the work of transmitting his features to posterity, and his features were such as no artist could fail to seize, and such as, once seen, could never be forgotten. His name at once calls up before us a slender and feeble frame, a lofty and ample forehead, a nose curved like the beak of an eagle, an eye rivalling that of an eagle in brightness and keenness, a thoughtful and somewhat sullen brow, a firm and somewhat peevish mouth, a cheek, pale, thin, and deeply furrowed by sickness, and by care. That pensive, severe, and solemn aspect could scarcely have belonged to a happy or a good-humoured man, but it indicates in a manner not to be mistaken capacity equal to the most arduous enterprises, and fortitude not to be shaken by reverses or dangers. Nature had largely endowed William with the qualities of a great ruler, and education had developed those qualities, in no common degree. With strong natural sense and rare force of will, he found himself, when first his mind began to open, a fatherless and motherless child, the chief of a great but depressed and disheartened party, and the heir to vast and indefinite pretensions, which excited the dread and aversion of the oligarchy, then supreme in the United Provinces. The common people, fondly attached during a century to his house, indicated whenever they saw him, in a manner not to be mistaken, that they regarded him as their rightful head. The able and experienced ministers of the Republic, mortal enemies of his name, came every day to pay their feigned civilities to him, and to observe the progress of his mind. The first movements of his ambition were carefully watched. Every unguarded word uttered by him was noted down, nor had he near him any adviser on whose judgment reliance could be placed. He was scarcely fifteen years old when all the domestics who were attached to his interest, or who enjoyed any share of his confidence, were removed from under his roof by the jealous government. He remonstrated with energy beyond his years, but in vain. Vigilant observers saw the tears more than once rise in the eyes of the young state prisoner. His health, naturally delicate, sank for a time under the emotions which his desolate situation had produced. Such situations bewilder and unnerve the weak. But call forth all the strength of the strong, surrounded by snares, in which an ordinary youth would have perished, William learned to tread at once, warily, and firmly. Long before he reached manhood, he knew how to keep secrets, how to baffle curiosity by dry and guarded answers, how to conceal all passions under the same show of grave tranquillity. Meanwhile, he made little proficiency in fashionable or literary accomplishments, The manners of the Dutch nobility of that age wanted the grace which was found in the highest perfection amongst the gentlemen of France, and which, in an inferior degree, embellished the court of England. And his manners were altogether Dutch. Even his countrymen thought him blunt. To foreigners he often seemed churlish. In his intercourse with the world in general he appeared ignorant or negligent of those arts, which double the value of a favour, and take away the sting of a refusal. He was little interested in letters or science. The discoveries of Newton and Leibniz, the poems of Dryden and Boilu, were unknown to him. Dramatic performances tired him, and he was glad to turn away from the stage, and to talk about public affairs, while Orestes was raving, or while Tartuffe was pressing Elmira's hand. He had, indeed, some talent for sarcasm, and not seldom employed, quite unconsciously, a natural rhetoric, quaint indeed, but vigorous and original. He did not, however, in the least affect the character of a wit or of an orator. His attention had been confined to those studies which form strenuous and sagacious men of business. From a child, he listened with interest when high questions of alliance, finance, and war were discussed. Of geometry he learned as much as was necessary for the construction of a ravelin or a hornwork. Of languages, by the help of a memory singularly powerful, he learned as much as was necessary to enable him to comprehend, and answer without assistance, everything that was said to him, and every letter which he received. The Dutch was his own tongue, He understood Latin, Italian, and Spanish. He spoke and wrote French, English, and German, inelegantly, it is true, and inexactly, but fluently and intelligibly. No qualification could be more important to a man whose life was to be passed in organizing great alliances and in commanding armies assembled from different countries. One class of philosophical questions had been forced on his attention by circumstances, and seemed to have interested him more than might have been expected from his general character. Among the Protestants of the United Provinces, as among the Protestants of our island, there were two great religious parties, which almost exactly coincided with two great political parties. The chiefs of the municipal oligarchy, were Arminians, and were commonly regarded by the multitude as little better than Papists. The Princes of Orange had generally been the patrons of the Calvinistic divinity, and owed no small part of their popularity to their zeal for the doctrines of election and final perseverance, a zeal not always enlightened by knowledge or tempered by humanity. William had been carefully instructed from a child in the theological system to which his family was attached, and regarded that system with even more than the partiality which men generally feel for a hereditary faith. He had ruminated on the great enigmas which had been discussed in the Synod of Dort, and had found in the austere and inflexible logic of the Genovese school something which suited his intellect and his temper. That example of intolerance, indeed which some of his predecessors had set, he never imitated. For all persecution, he felt a fixed aversion which he avowed, not only where the avowal was obviously politic, but on occasions where it seemed that his interest would have been promoted by dissimulation, or by silence. His theological opinions, however, were even more decided than those of his ancestors. The tenet of predestination was the keystone of his religion. He often declared that if he were to abandon that tenet, he must abandon with it all belief in a superintending providence, and must become a mere Epicurean. Except in this single instance, all the sap of his vigorous mind were early drawn away from the speculative to the practical THE FACULTIES WHICH ARE NECESSARY FOR THE CONDUCT OF IMPORTANT BUSINESS RIPENED IN HIM AT A TIME OF LIFE WHEN THEY HAVE SCARCELY BEGUN TO BLOSSOM IN ORDINARY MEN. SINCE OCTAVIUS THE WORLD HAD SEEN NO SUCH INSTANCE OF PRECOCIOUS STATESMANSHIP. SKILFUL DIPLOMATISTS WERE SURPRISED TO HEAR THE WEIGHTY OBSERVATIONS WHICH at SEVENTEEN THE PRINCE MADE ON PUBLIC AFFAIRS, AND STILL MORE SURPRISED TO SEE A LAD in situations in which he might have been expected to betray strong passion, preserve a composure as imperturbable as their own. At eighteen he sate among the fathers of the Commonwealth, grave, discreet, and judicious as the oldest among them. At twenty-one, in a day of gloom and terror, he was placed at the head of the administration. At twenty-three, he was renowned throughout Europe, as a soldier, and a politician. He had put domestic factions under his feet, he was the soul of a mighty coalition, and he had contended with honour in the field against some of the greatest generals of his age. His personal tastes were those rather of a warrior than of a statesman. But he, like his great-grandfather, the Silent Prince, who founded the Batavian Commonwealth, "'occupies a far higher place among statesmen than among warriors. "'The event of battles, indeed, "'is not an unfailing test of the abilities of a commander, "'and it would be peculiarly unjust to apply this test to William, "'for it was his fortune to be almost always opposed to captains "'who were consummate masters of their art, "'and to troops far superior in discipline to his own.' Yet there is reason to believe that he was by no means equal as a general in the field to some who ranked far below him in intellectual powers. To those whom he trusted he spoke on this subject with the magnanimous frankness of a man who had done great things and who could well afford to acknowledge some deficiencies. He had never, he said, served an apprenticeship to the military profession, "'he had been placed while still a boy at the head of an army. "'Among his officers there had been none competent to instruct him. "'His own blunders and their consequences had been his only lessons. "'I would give, he once exclaimed, a good part of my estates "'to have served a few campaigns under the Prince of Cond "'before I had to command against him. "'It is not improbable that the circumstance which prevented William from attaining any eminent dexterity in strategy, may have been favourable to the general vigour of his intellect. If his battles were not those of a great tactician, they entitled him to be called a great man. No disaster could for one moment deprive him of his firmness, or of the entire possession of all his faculties. His defeats were repaired with such marvellous celerity, that before his enemies had sung the Te Deum, he was again ready for conflict. Nor did his adverse fortune ever deprive him of the respect and confidence of his soldiers. That respect and confidence he owed in no small measure to his personal courage. Courage in the degree which is necessary to carry a soldier without disgrace through a campaign, is possessed or might under proper training be acquired, by the great majority of men. But courage like that of William is rare indeed. He was proved by every test, by war, by wounds, by painful and depressing maladies, by raging seas, by the imminent and constant risk of assassination, a risk which has shaken very strong nerves, a risk which severely tried even the adamantine fortitude of Cromwell. Yet none could ever discover what that thing was which the Prince of Orange feared. His advisers could with difficulty induce him to take any precaution against the pistols and daggers of conspirators. Old sailors were amazed at the composure which he preserved amidst roaring breakers on a perilous coast. In battle, His bravery made him conspicuous, even among tens of thousands of brave warriors, drew forth the generous applause of hostile armies, and was never questioned, even by the injustice, of hostile factions. During his first campaigns, he exposed himself like a man who sought for death, was always foremost in the charge, and last in the retreat, fought sword in hand in the thickest press, and with musket-ball in his arm and the blood streaming over his cuirass, still stood his ground and waved his hat under the hottest fire. His friends adjured him to take more care of a life invaluable to his country, and his most illustrious antagonist, the great Conde, remarked after the bloody day of Senef, that the Prince of Orange had in all things borne himself like an old general, except in exposing himself like a young soldier. William denied that he was guilty of temerity. It was, he said, from a sense of duty and on a cool calculation of what the public interest required that he was always at the post of danger. The troops which he commanded had been little used to war and shrank from a close encounter with the veteran soldiery of France. It was necessary that their leader should show them how battles were to be won, and in truth, more than one day, which had seemed hopelessly lost, was retrieved by the hardihood with which he rallied his broken battalions, and cut down with his own hand the cowards who set the example of flight. Sometimes, however, it seemed that he had a strange pleasure in venturing his person. It was remarked that his spirits were never so high, and his manners never so gracious and easy as amidst the tumult and carnage of a battle. Even in his pastimes he liked the excitement of danger. Cards, chess, and billiards gave him no pleasure. The chase was his favourite recreation, and he loved it most when it was most hazardous. His leaps were sometimes such that his boldest companions did not like to follow him. He seems even to have thought the most hardy field-sports of England effeminate and to have pined in the great park of Windsor for the game which he had been used to drive to bay in the forest of Gelders. Wolves, wild boars, and huge stags with sixteen antlers. The audacity of his spirit was the more remarkable, because his physical organisation was unusually delicate. From a child he had been weak and sickly. In the prime of manhood his complaints had been aggravated by a severe attack of smallpox. He was asthmatic and consumptive. His slender frame was shaken by a constant hoarse cough. He could not sleep, unless his head was propped by several pillows, and could scarcely draw his breath in any but the purest air. Cruel headaches frequently tortured him. Exertion soon fatigued him. The physicians constantly kept up the hopes of his enemies, by fixing some date beyond which, if there were anything certain in medical science, it was impossible that his broken constitution could hold out. Yet, through a life which was one long disease, the force of his mind never failed, on any great occasion, to bear up his suffering and languid body. He was born with violent passions and quick sensibilities, but the strength of his emotions was not suspected by the world, From the multitude, his joy and his grief, his affection and his resentment were hidden by a phlegmatic serenity, which made him pass for the most cold-blooded of mankind. Those who brought him good news could seldom detect any sign of pleasure. Those who saw him after a defeat looked in vain for any trace of vexation. He praised and reprimanded, rewarded and punished with the stern tranquillity of a mohawk chief. But those who knew him well, and saw him near, were aware that under all this ice a fierce fire was constantly burning. It was seldom that anger deprived him of power over himself. But when he was really enraged, the first outbreak of his passion was terrible. It was indeed scarcely safe to approach him. On these rare occasions, however, As soon as he regained his self-command, he made such ample reparation to those whom he had wronged as tempted them to wish that he were going to a fury again. His affection was as impetuous as his wrath. Where he loved, he loved with the whole energy of his strong mind. When death separated him from what he loved, the few who witnessed his agonies trembled for his reason and his life. To a very small circle of intimate friends, on whose fidelity and secrecy he could absolutely depend, he was a different man from the reserved and stoical William, whom the multitude supposed to be destitute of human feelings. He was kind, cordial, open, even convivial, and jocose, would sit at table many hours, and would bear his full share in festive conversation. Highest in his favour stood a gentleman of his household named Bentinck, "'Sprung from a noble Batavian race "'and destined to be the founder "'of one of the great patrician houses of England. "'The fidelity of Bentinck "'had been tried by no common test. "'It was while the United Provinces "'were struggling for existence "'against the French power "'that the young prince, "'on whom all their hopes were fixed, "'was seized by the smallpox. "'That disease had been fatal "'to many members of his family.' and at first wore, in his case, a peculiarly malignant aspect. The public consternation was great. The streets of The Hague were crowded from daybreak to sunset, by persons anxiously asking how His Highness was. At length his complaint took a favourable turn. His escape was attributed partly to his own singular equanimity, and partly to the intrepid and indefatigable friendship of Bentinck. From the hands of Bentinck alone William took food and medicine by Bentinck alone William was lifted from his bed and laid down in it whether Bentinck slept or not while I was ill said William to Temple with great tenderness i know not but this i know that through sixteen days and nights i never once called for anything but that Bentinck was instantly at my side Before the faithful servant had entirely performed his task, he had himself caught the contagion. Still, however, he bore up against drowsiness and fever till his master was pronounced convalescent. Then, at length, Bentink asked leave to go home. It was time, for his limbs would no longer support him. He was in great danger, but recovered, and as soon as he left his bed, hastened to the army, where during many sharp campaigns he was ever found, as he had been in peril of a different kind, close to William's side. Such was the origin of a friendship, as warm and pure as any that ancient or modern history records. The descendants of Bentinck still preserve many letters written by William to their ancestor, and it is not too much to say that no person who has not studied those letters can form a correct notion of the prince's character. He, whom even his admirers generally accounted the most distant and frigid of men, here forgets all distinctions of rank, and pours out all his thoughts with the ingenuousness of a schoolboy. He imparts without reserve secrets of the highest moment. He explains with perfect simplicity vast designs affecting all the governments of Europe mingled with his communications on such subjects are other communications of a very different, but perhaps not of a less interesting kind. All his adventures, all his personal feelings, his long runs after enormous stags, his carousals on St. Hubert's Day, the growth of his plantations, the failure of his melons, the state of his stud, his wish to procure an easy pad nag for his wife, His vexation at learning that one of his household, after ruining a girl of a good family, refused to marry her. His fits of seasickness, his coughs, his headaches, his devotional moods, his gratitude for the divine protection after a great escape, his struggles to submit himself to the divine will after a disaster, are described with an amiable garrulity. "'hardly to have been expected from the most discreet "'and sedate statesman of the age. "'Still more remarkable is the careless effusion of his tenderness "'and the brotherly interest which he takes in his friend's domestic felicity. "'When an heir is born to Bentinck, he will live, I hope,' says William, "'to be as good a fellow as you are. "'And if I should have a son, our children will love each other, "'I hope as we have done.' Through life he continues to regard the little Bentinks with paternal kindness. He calls them by endearing diminutives. He takes charge of them in their father's absence, and though vexed at being forced to refuse them any pleasure, will not suffer them to go on a hunting party, where there would be risk of a push from a stag's horn, or to sit up late to write a supper. When their mother is taken ill during her husband's absence, William, in the midst of business of the highest moment, finds time to send off several expresses in one day, with short notes containing intelligence of her state. On one occasion, when she is pronounced out of danger after a severe attack, the prince breaks forth into fervent expressions of gratitude to God. I write, he says, with tears of joy in my eyes. There is a singular charm in such letters penned by a man whose irresistible energy and inflexible firmness extorted the respect of his enemies, whose cold and ungracious demeanour repelled the attachment of almost all his partisans, and whose mind was occupied by gigantic schemes which have changed the face of the world. His kindness was not misplaced. Bentinck was early pronounced by Temple to be the best and truest servant "'that ever Prince had the good fortune to possess, "'and continued through life to merit that honourable character. "'The friends were indeed made for each other. "'William wanted neither a guide nor a flatterer, "'having a firm and just reliance on his own judgment. "'He was not partial to counsellors "'who dealt much in suggestions and objections. "'At the same time he had too much discernment and too much elevation of mind to be gratified by sycophancy. The confidence of such a prince ought to be a man not of inventive genius or commanding spirit, but brave and faithful, capable of executing orders punctually, of keeping secrets inviolably, of observing facts vigilantly, and of reporting them truly, and such a man was Bentinck. End Chapter 7, Part 1